Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash sonicsinema. There you'll see um, write-ups on films and TV shows that I've watched for the first time as well as other items such as in this particular case. Uh, reviews of the short film blocks that I saw at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. That is patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. I hope you check it out. Before we get to the uh, meat and potatoes of this particular podcast, which is a summary of the Sundance Film Festival 2021 edition, I wanted to share an interview with you about the first film that I officially saw at the uh, film festival, for the film festival. Uh, it is Julian Doan's short film, Raspberry, and I had a chance to talk to Julian on the opening day of the film festival about the movie, and I hope you enjoy that conversation. What was, what was the inspiration behind the movie? Um, it was, you know, it was inspired by, um, well, first, you know, I, I went through that pretty much, uh, uh, my my dad passed away a few years ago from brain cancer and you know mm. we he he came home to hospice and we sort of uh we had him you know dying in a bed essentially for two weeks and i think like when you kind of like go through that prolonged period of like watching someone die slowly mm. it's like you know you, it's like the all the drama of all of that gets so spread out so there's just a lot of kind of just banality in between that right so and it was like that stuff was so surreal to me um and like there's just a lot of there was a lot of awkwardness in dealing with it you know Mm -hmm. um there's things like like do we want to take a picture of him after he died like i feel like that maybe i should it's like the last photo i probably will ever have of him but like do i want that photo of him Mm -hmm. um i and i did but you know but at some level i felt strange about it also like why do i feel strange about that you know why does why does why can't why can't we do that you know um probably being raised in a western society that has like a certain relationship with death so i think you know going through that inspired a lot of like the kind of tone of this and the the interest of like all that you know as well as like just being like oh like we have to say goodbye now and I feel like anything I come up with is gonna sound either too flowery or like kind of stupid I I don't know it's like you know like what what do you say um yeah no and I I one of the things that really spoke to me about the movie i i actually was thinking about my uh my my father's death as well um he passed away about seven years ago um he he was having heart problems and it was it was one of those things where it's like his last weekend we were basically you know they were trying to you know they were trying to help him trying to help him and then it finally got to the point where there was really nothing that they could do to help him and um you know, just it was funny just sitting there, and you know, it my. I was there. My mother was there. My now wife was there, and some friends of ours, and we were we were just talking. We were enjoying each other's company, and we were just, you know, appreciating. You know, we were appreciating uh, times that we spent with him. And it was funny. And one of the things that I talked about in my review is that. 
you know, there came a point, there was actually a point where something turned out not quite what we expected it to be. And it left us, it, it left us not feeling somber, not feeling, not, not feeling depressed about, but just it, it hit the right note as far as us being able to leave with a smile on our face. And it was one of those things where, you know, death, people just respond to death differently. And that's one of the things that I think is so beautiful about this. It's such a simple story. And it's like, what do you want your last moments to be with a loved one? And it's, it's, it's sometimes funny the way that that works out for certain people. Yeah. I mean, that's beautiful, man. I, I think, I think what's kind of cool is like people kind of watch it and then immediately they sort of go to whatever their own thing is, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of like so open to that. I think that's wonderful. And it's like, feels so, uh, I don't know. It feels so human to then hear stories like what, what you went through and be like, Oh, we all kind of go through that. What was, what was, what was one of the biggest challenges for you to try to reflect something that was so personal to you in real life? on the screen without it being modeling or melodramatic or just very sappy sentimental. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know for me that, that, uh, the, the straying away from those things was too much of a challenge because I sort of knew that like the experience I felt watching, um, kind of watching, my dad died felt so kind of like flat in a way it was so like anticlimactic so in my head it's like I kind of just pictured it like there's no you know there's no music there's no like harps playing there's no violin there's nothing nothing none of that happened in real life you know so I think like a lot of that was just going to be in the film it's like um and I love like a lot of like minimalist like European filmmakers um I'm so moved by like the frankness like Michael Haneke's work mostly um so I think I kind of wanted to you know, sort of portray that. Um, but, you know, I think certainly there was a challenge in trying to calibrate like the emotional aspect of it ver- and, and some of the comedy mm-hmm. and the approach to comedy is never, you know, we were never to think about any of this as comedic, yeah. um, you know, all, everything that's happening is just happening in the reality of this situation. Um, and we'll just like lean on the fact that it's like, that there's a juxtaposition of what's happening versus what should people feel it should be. And that will be the humor, you know? Um, and honestly, like a lot of the, just in terms of the tone of the acting and, and, you know, the maudlin, you know, staying away from being maudlin and kind of saccharine and stuff. Like it just sort of the act, those actors are just, you know, Ray and Joe and Alexis and Jeehee and Harry, Molly, Matt, they're all just like so attuned and so, um, you know, intuitive and, I really just, you know, I, I think just we talked about death, we talked about loss with the actors, and like they just, they just kind of got it. <laughs> like to be very honest, um, so I th- think, yeah, I think they kind of knew. I think they kind of knew intuitively, like where this was going to sit, you know. Yeah, and I, I think it is about being, it is about finding that tone, and it is about finding that moment where it's like you can have humor, but it's like you're not you're not overemphasizing the humor for effect. You're just laying the humor 
go, like when they're bringing the stretcher in and it sort of, you know, it sort of catches itself on the, uh, on the sliding door. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, of course this is going to happen at this point. But at the same time, it just yeah. goes, it, it just goes at a point, and then the fact that they are so the under the the people taking away the uh, body, they're just they don't really react to any of the things that they're being told because they're they're familiar that they're seeing. They're just familiar with basic. They probably are of the feeling that they've basically seen every type of reaction to death. And uh, exactly. regardless right. of what it is. And um, yeah, being able to uh, capture that tone is just really, uh, re- was was really, uh, really gratifying to see. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what What is, is this the uh, first festival that it's played at? This is the premiere of Raspberry. Yeah, it's premiering here at Sundance. Yeah, it's it's wonderful a wonderful premiere to have. <laughs> we're 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 so like it's so I mean, it was so unexpected for us, you know. Um I wanted to make something good. And I wanted to make something different than I had made in some years and uh that I, I felt like it was a film when we sort of finished it, I felt like it was a film I'd been like wanting to make for like mm-hmm. my entire career essentially. Were there any? Uh, were there any particular? Uh, we we sort of touched on this earlier. Were there any particular challenges with making the mo- this movie? Um, you know, there was a lot of. Um, I'm trying to think of like a one particular challenge. I mean, you know, it, it was all films kind of have like you know uh, scheduling and budgetary uh, challenges, of course. But we we got the film up and running and like really t- into production like pretty fast. It was mm-hmm. like from the moment we started to like shooting it, it was like three and a half weeks. And like you know, we all work full time jobs and stuff uh, in the film industry, so it's very difficult to find time to do things like casting. Like I didn't, we didn't <laughs> cast, we didn't have casting sessions. It was like Ray is my friend. I knew we wanted to do it with Ray. He's he's such a talented actor. And he's got that, like, he's got just every, all the emotional, uh, uh, you know, weapons to like, to like sort of catch this entire breadth of emotions that this character has to go through. Um, and, you know, we found a lot of the other castmates, like through other projects that, you know, various people had worked on. And we sort of surprisingly just found like the right group to be this family. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think for me, I will say for me, the biggest thing that drove me um, through the entire process, it's kind of funny to say, but it was almost like a fear. I was driven by like this fear for a lot of the time is that I I knew that the tone was that it was going to feel somewhat boring, was mm-hmm. that the it would feel dry and clinical. And, um, you know, and I knew the main character wasn't going to say anything. So it was like, how do we do this short film that feels so dry and, and a character that feels so dry and, and, and like opaque. And how do you kind of like put this together and make an audience feel uh, not only like invested, but like curious, you know, like mm-hmm. how do you pull them into that? So like, that was always like, um, like a thing in the back of my head. And I was constantly trying to just like figure out ways to like, to interest you, but without making it so cutty, without making it so, you know, so on the nose. Yeah. No, it was finding like that middle lane. Yeah. And 
I think one of the reasons that 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 succeeds so much in doing that is because of the fact that it starts out, it starts about out about the family in general, and then as the you know as the short progresses in those seven minutes, you start to notice you you start to notice the main character more, and then you start to really linger on him more, and you do make him the main character to the point where it's like it's really his his reaction to this death is what we're waiting for and i think that's part of the reason why it's it it's so effective because of the fact that it completely takes us by surprise as to what that reaction is right well yeah i'm, I'm glad that, that works because it was like you know in terms of shot listing and and you know i cut as well like um and so in terms of like sort of the grammar of the film and piecing it together, you know, it was like every shot to me needed to like introduce some new question or some, Mm -hmm. some sort of new information, which kind of feels like it goes without saying, but sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes films don't do that. But this one was so like, I felt like we were, we needed to be strategic. Like, let's see the family. Then let's see the dad. Let's see the fallout of the death. And then suddenly like, there's this new character and then you need to be like, who is he? And then, you know, so we need to like kind of like there needed to be like this building block sort of like experience to like watching the film, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that the character doesn't say anything is part of what makes that uh, eventual, you know, the the eventual surprise so pleasantly surprising because of the fact that it's like it 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 just goes to one of those things where it's like sometimes you don't necessarily need to say something it all sometimes it's just actions that you know right. can can basically say everything you need to say. Yeah, yeah. But uh, well, thank you very much for your time today. I and like I said, I I love the film. It's it was such a great way to start the festival, and uh, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to uh, seeing the type of reaction it gets as the uh, week goes along. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm moved by your, by your reactions to it. So thank you. And thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. So this is, I wasn't necessarily expecting, uh, Sundance to be my first film festival of the year. And it'll probably be only one of two as I do plan on trying to cover the Atlanta film festival again in uh, late April, early May. But when I found out that they were actually going to be doing satellite screenings in Atlanta at the Plaza for the Sundance Film Festival, I got intrigued about the idea of covering it for the first time. So I sent my application and was approved for uh, covering it. And it was it was not how I would hope to cover Sundance for the first time. Obviously, it would be great to be able to go to Park City, Utah and check out the atmosphere, check out the uh, legendary theaters there where uh, people converse over the films and uh, see some of the big um, movies that get acquired out of Sundance uh, play for the first time. And that was not on the cards this year. It was an all-virtual festival because of COVID-19. But um, it was still really exciting to see it branch out to try to get as many people as 
possible watching and taking part in the festival this year, even though it was an all-virtual festival, even though it was not to take place at Park City. And I hope that, while I do continue to hope that I will get a chance to watch, to go to the festival in person myself in the uh, upcoming years, I do, I did really enjoy this, and I do hope that they keep some semblance of the uh, virtual um, aspect of it alive in the years to come. And I think I have a feeling a lot of film festivals are probably going to end up doing that. But uh, we'll, we'll see what it's like once um, things start to get back to a relative normal. So I, I didn't go quite as hogwild with screeners before the festival like I did uh, for Fantasia Fest, partially because there was a set schedule of screens that I was able to get to this time, unlike Fantasia Fest, where all the most of the screens were geo-blocked for me. And so I wanted to basically let the festival come to me. And uh, it was still a pretty exhausting experience. I actually still saw like seven... I still saw like seven fewer combined features and short films at Sundance in like a week and a half compared to the 73 that I saw at Fantasia Fest, which I covered for over a month. Um, so it was, it was, needless to say, it was a pretty busy week. And uh, there are some good things and bad things I, I think that are... Uh, pretty evident as we continue to see virtual film festivals pop up. And I talk about that in my written blog on Sundance. Uh, this is something I wanted to devote this podcast to talking about the films that I enjoyed the most out of um, Sundance. And we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be breaking it up into just six uh, six categories, and um, the first category I will say is uh, best screenplay, and uh, this this was there were actually some very strong movies here, and there are some really interesting movies from a thematic and from a narrative standpoint that I'm looking forward to diving into more as uh, they go into regular release. Uh, that's certainly going to be the case with two of these, which I have not done print reviews yet for. Third on my list for the best screenplay of the festival is Passing, uh, Rebecca Hall's movie about two women who were high school friends in 1920s New York who meet up again, and they both could pass for either uh, white or black at that point. And uh, one of them is passing as black, one of them is passing as white. And there's a lot of really interesting racial dynamics at play in this movie, and the performances by Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson are really exceptional. And their, their performances, I'm curious to see how Netflix is going to um, promote this movie as it when it goes into release. And I'm curious to see how larger audiences in general uh, respond to it. 
I'm looking forward to reviewing this movie more in depth as it goes into regular release, but uh, I will say it it really <clears throat> it really did kind of struck a, strike a chord for me in terms of the way it the way it approached the issues of race and race in this particular time in American history, and I'm I. It's uh, one of those movies that definitely stayed with me as the uh, festival ended. Next up is On the Count of Three, which I caught up with after it was an award winner at Sundance. And this is an interesting movie because of the fact that it's about, it's about two friends who basically make a suicide pact that at the end of this particular day, they're going to uh, kill one another. And because um, they don't really feel like they have anything to live for. And it's interesting to see them, it's interesting to see the perspectives change as the day goes on. And the uh, performances by Gerard Carmichael, who I'll talk about uh, later, and who directed the film, and Christopher Abbott just do a wonderful job of bring these characters to life and bring these differing uh, dynamics to life. And so On the Count of Three was my number two as far as the screenplays of the festival. Number one for me was Mass. And uh, this movie I've already reviewed in print, but it's well worth going back and reading what I talked about when it comes to uh, Fran Kranz's uh, directorial debut. And it's, you can certainly make the argument that a lot of people did that's very wordy, that it could be more of a stage play, but I think there's a lot to what Kranz does as a director that makes this movie so much more interesting than just something that could be seen on the uh, stage. And you see the way that the camera's used and the way the actors... Um, in this movie, the extraordinary performances in this movie uh, play out, and the way that it approaches the subject of the after effects of gun violence and what that does to people who people who both lost somebody to the violence and to the people who are related to the perpetrator of that violence. And it was um, it, it was a fascinating movie to watch for that very reason. And Mass is, it's going to be hard to top that movie for me for this year. I'm really curious to see how the rest of the year unfolds. But that was very much the best movie of the uh, festival for me. When it comes to the uh, best performances of the film festival, I've already mentioned some of them, and honestly, like I could go uh, six deep just talking about on the count of three and mass in particular because those performances are so good. Uh, number three for me is Gerard Carmichael, who's the director of On the Count of Three and the main character, and the the way his character transitions in his uh, perspective on his life and what, they're, what they might be doing 
at the end of the day is really extraordinary to watch. And Christopher Abbott is exceptional in this movie as well, but it's a particularly fascinating to watch uh, Gerard Carmichael's character and to see him grow, to see him change throughout the film. And that's why when it comes to the uh, performances, he was my number three for the festival. Number two is Amelia Jones uh, for the big winner, the festival Coda. And uh, this, there's, there's nothing particularly extraordinary about her performance, but she is playing opposite. She, she, is, she is supposed to play a character who's basically, who, who's basically been her parents and her brother's uh, voice over the years. And she has a choice to make when it comes to her own personal voice and it's just a beautiful performance. It's a wonderful performance. The entire cast in this movie is exceptional as well. All three of these casts are just great, and there were plenty of others. Um, but Amelia Jones stands out, and I think that hers is a performance that I think everybody, to a lot of people, can really connect with and resonate with. And so I, I think she's going to be somebody that breaks out pretty uh, heavily uh, when it comes to uh, when Coda comes out from a Apple Plus later in the year. So my number two performance of Sundance is Amelia Jones and Coda. Uh, number one, this is no surprise at all. And honestly, this could easily be a four-way tie for me. Um, it's Jason Isaacs in uh, Mass. And he and Martha Plimpton play a couple who are who lost a child to a school shooting, and they are meeting a couple played by Reed Burnt Bernie and the fantastic Endowed, who they are the parents of the person who perpetrated the shooting. And seeing the way the character dynamics between these four play out is just extraordinary and is a, is a master class in acting opposite partners. And you see there's not a false note in any of these performances. All four of them are just fantastic. But Jason Isaacs is the one that stands out. And uh, he's, he's the one that had the most attention from the critics I talked to uh, and communicated with throughout the festival. And it's just a beautiful performance. And it's filled with rage and empathy. And it's, it's the movie itself is going to be one of those movies that I think people are going to be talking about. And I'm curious to see the discussions that come out of this and uh, come out of this movie. And so my the best performance I saw at Sundance, out of the best movie I saw at Sundance, and we're going to get to that, is uh, Jason Isaac's Mast. Next up, we're going to go ahead and say best narrative features, and or best narrative films, I should say, because two of the films I'm 
including her short films. I uh, and this these this is an interesting uh, list, and it's funny that two of the short films I saw very early on in my viewing for Sundance ended up being two of the best that I saw throughout the f the festival, and uh, they were Raspberry, which I've already listed as well, and you already heard me talk to Julianne Doan about the film, but also uh, Doublespeak, which is about the aftermath of a woman who reports sexual harassment in the office and basically is, is, is left to hear what the company found and it's just such a devastating film to an uncomfortable film to sit through, and I think it has to be because of the fact that it's it's basically about how it's about how workplaces uh, fail women or anybody who comes forward with harassment. And it's funny that I'm recording this uh, the day after Charisma Carpenter. Uh, spoke her um, allegations about Joss Whedon, and uh, which after Ray Fisher in the Justice League uh, last summer, and it's really kind of interesting to have this uh, the, this be discussed at this point and watch Double Speak, which is not necessarily the same thing, but at the same time, it's it's one of those things where you. You you just feel for the main character, and it is uh, it's it's a it's a heartbreaking ten minutes to watch, but it is a completely uh, fantastic experience. And so, my three and two in the best narrative films list were Double Speak and Raspberry. My number one was Mass. Um, it was a no brainer. It was. Uh, the film that had me had the most impact on me watching it um, throughout the festival and uh, it's 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 just one of those movies that um, I can't wait to see again I can't wait to see what the reaction is um, from people when the movie does come out for best documentary fe films and again these are e either features or shorts although all three of these are uh, features um my three favorite the three best i saw at the film festival the first one is summer of soul which is, which is a quest loves uh, documentary about the harlem cultural festival in 1969 the summer of woodstock and I, I saw, as one of two movies I saw at the film festival uh, twice, and it was, it was just a wonderful experience. It's so alive with the performances, so fascinating with how, the idea of how this performance um, got, essentially got sidelined because of uh, Woodstock and what we see as far as what it speaks to happening in the country and especially happening in black America at the time in 1969. And there are just so, so many wonderful performances in this. 
and uh, it's it's a movie. I'm I hope Search Love treats it well because it is a fantastic film. So my number three for best documentary films is Summer of Soul. Number two is Misha and the Wolves, and this is a fascinating story about um, a Holocaust survivor whose recollections or whose truth about the Holocaust may not necessarily be honest. And it's, it's a uh, very compelling look at the truth, at personal truths, and the way that myth can be blown into something that nobody can really control. And, and essentially, it also talks about like how we as a society um, can sometimes negate the experiences and I insult the experiences of people who have actually gone through something like the Holocaust if we have a personal stake in doing so. And again, it's actually kind of funny because I'm now that I'm talking about this, you know, we just had uh, Gina Carano get um, fired from or announced that she was not returning to The Mandalorian uh, because of her social media comments, which includes things that uh, a lot of people considered anti-Semitic. So it's 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 a fascinating it's a fascinating documentary. Netflix guy, I'm can't wait to see people check it out because there are some twists and turns in this movie that are just mind blowing to watch. Uh, which brings us to number one as far as best documentary films at the Sundance Film Festival. And it was it had to be Flea, which is the story of an Afghan boy who, along with his family, had to get out of Afghanistan in the 1980s because of um, what was going on there at the time. And it's done a lot in animation, and it is just a remarkable telling of this story. And it's, it's one of the most emotional experiences at the uh, film festival. And Neon has this one, and I, again, I can't wait for people to see it. It's, this is one that I'm going to be digging deeper into. I didn't write an actual review of it uh, because of the fact that it was one that I caught at a second screening. But I definitely am going to revisit this one in print form uh, when the movie comes out. So uh, my the best documentary of Sundance that I saw was Flea. Which brings me to the final two uh, final two categories that I wanted to cover here. And uh, they're essentially the favorites of the festival. And this is basically I I I picked five um, five features and five short films none of which have been talked about uh, so far in this podcast, to highlight because of the fact that I wanted to, I wanted to give um, credit to as many movies as possible uh, coming out of Sundance, and 
it was there there were a lot of really great ones that I enjoyed talking watching and talking about and uh, experiencing for the first time. And so we're going to start with the my five favorite short films of the festival and <clears throat> and keep one of these names in mind because it's going to play in at the uh, end of the podcast. And all of these were, I didn't get a chance to see all of the short films at the festival, but I saw enough to know that this was actually a pretty interesting and pretty uh, varied collection. And one that was definitely worth uh, checking out. Keeping, saying aside Raspberry and Doublespeak, uh, my five favorite short films were the festival, for the festival were The Fourfold, which is an animated uh, representation of a shamanistic uh, ritual. The Touch of the Master's Hand, which is a comedy about a Mormon elder who is being questioned by the president of the church while he's on a mission. When We Were Bullies, which is a bit long, but is a uh, fascinating look at a particular moment of bullying for in the filmmaker's uh, life in grade school and how people within that class who remember that experience, how they go about remembering that experience. And it was, it's a fascinating watch, and I'm really curious to see how people uh, respond to it. A Concerto is a Conversation, which is a uh, documentary um, where a son and a father have a discussion about the racism that the uh, father had, and it's structured in the uh, manner of a concerto musical piece. And my favorite short film of the festival is by far the most irreverent of the bunch. It is Ghost Dogs, which is an animated look at the what happens when a new dog... Um, is basically alone at the in the house at night, and this this is kind of a perverse one, kind of a creepy one, but it's a beautifully animated one. It's a really haunting one, and I look forward to. And if you so, if you have a chance to watch it at a film festival, I highly recommend it. It's it's really it's really something you will never forget. So that brings me to my favorite film, feature films of the fest, uh, setting aside Summer of Soul, Mission, The Wolves, Flea, and Mass. Um, these five features that I'm going to talk about um, cover a lot of ground in terms of how they approach their subjects. And uh, it's, it's really compelling to see. And some of them don't always work, but they were, one, they were experiences that I'm glad I had in this particular environment, although it would have been a trip to watch some of them in the theater. So with that being said, my five favorites of the fest uh, that I'm going to p 
put aside here are Prisoners of the Ghostland with Nicolas Cage in a post-apocalyptic Japan, or and uh, it's it's a wild movie that you would expect from Nicolas Cage. It's sometimes not quite as bonkers as you hope it is, but it's Nicolas Cage, and it has him in a uh, suit that has testicle bombs by his testicles. So that's all I kind of need to say about that. Uh, the Pink Cloud is probably the best movie you're going to see about uh, quarantine and uh, being isolated from humanity as you can you you will probably expect to watch this year. It's from it's a foreign film and it is a just wonderful film about uh, two people who go on a date. And they'd never met before, but a pink cloud comes up that kills people within 10 seconds. So they have to isolate together. And seeing the way that their relationship ebbs and flows as the pink cloud remains, it's really fascinating. And it's I, I really hope I get a chance to watch this again as the... Uh, year goes on because of the fact that it's it's a uh, wonderful film and I'm looking for I'm curious to see any discussions it might have might inspire in people so the pink cloud is next next is a glitch in the matrix which you can actually watch now it came out on the 5th of February and it's a it's from the director of room 237 which I'm not a big fan of but this is basically exploring the question of whether we live in a whether the world we live in is a simulation and it's it's really a i wasn't sure how i was going to feel about this but i think the way he approaches the subject and the turn especially it takes near the end what made it very worthwhile to watch and i'm glad i got a chance to watch it like I said, it's available now. A glitch in the matrix. It's, it's, it's worth checking out if you like documentaries that can be more speculative than like honest, serious documentaries. Which brings us to number two. Although it's not too terribly serious, it is Edgar Wright's The Sparks Brothers, and it is about the band Sparks. And this has been something he's had working on for a couple of years, and it is a, a great two-hour-plus documentary about the history of Sparks and their career, the ebbs and flows, the highs, the lows, uh, told by the, the band itself as well as fans and collaborators over the years. And... Uh, my final film of these five that I would consider my favorites of the fest is Sean Ellis's Eight for Silver, which was a werewolf uh, thriller set during a uh, cholera pandemic. And it's it, the cholera pandemic is off to the side. It's more the werewolf. It, it's also about the responsibility a society has when... Um, it comes to violence and what can happen if that responsibility is uh, 
violated in any way, shape, or form. And I had a chance to talk to Sean Ellis. You can read my uh, interview with him on the written conclusion of my Sundance coverage, and I hope you take a chance to look at that. And it's really just a fascinating, I love this type of uh, genre film. It reminds you a little bit about the uh, Hammer Horror series, and uh, it's it's really an entertaining thriller. So, uh, Eight for Silver is my uh, fifth choice for my uh, favorites of the festival. To close, um, I have a special treat. We began with an interview. We're going to end with an interview as well. In this case, it is an interview with writer-director Gregory Barnes, who made The Touch of the Master's Hand, which was an one of the award-winning shorts at Sundance this year, and I have great pleasure talking to uh, Gregory after the uh, festival, and I hope you enjoy that interview. Um, well, first of all, congratulations on the success of the short at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, it ended up being the uh, last new film that I saw at Sundance, and I really enjoyed it. Um, so congratulations on the success of it at the festival. Thank you. Thank you so much. What was the inspiration behind the film? Um, well, growing up, I was, um, grew up in a very, like, uh, religious, uh, home. So I just kind of wanted to make a little movie about Mormonism and kind of like, um, I don't know if I would necessarily call them issues, but just, you know, they're pretty conservative people. So I just thought it was like a pretty funny con to make a movie around this um, fairly regular uh, practice in Mormonism where um, leaders ask you if, you know, are, if you're obedient or if you're faithful. And I thought that was kind of ripe for humor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, my uh, in-laws are Mormon. So uh, I'm, I'm familiar somewhat with the, uh, with the, the faith and their practices. So that's one of the reasons why I was curious to see your see the film, to see the uh, the the perspective that you brought to it. And I, I think one of the things that I really like about it is that it 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 is respectful of the faith while also being a bit irreverent in at least the one particular portion of uh, the faith that you're exploring too. And not necessarily because of anything on the religious side, but on what Elder Hyde is dealing with. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about it. Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I think like I like treating the characters as humans, uh, you know, and their problems are real and not really interested in making fun of like Elder Hyde per se. Yeah. Although, you know, he's definitely been persuaded he's a he's an addict, even though to what he's addicted to is quite, you know, silly. I mean, it is, like, perceivably gentle on Mormonisms. I, I do sexualize a baptism, which is fairly um, a sacred moment for them. So I don't think it's with, not without its ironies. Right. Um, was there a particular reason behind the uh, particular choice of the, uh, I guess the 
I, I don't want to give too much away, but the addiction that Elder Hyde has, the 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 reason for his addiction, was there a particular reason for the choice that was made there? Yeah, I mean, so there's a little bit of a reveal in the movie that, um, you, you know, the mission president asks him a series of questions of his uh, worthiness, and it comes out that he feels like he has a masturbation problem, and in his interrogation, the president wants to get to the root of, you know, what that is, um, uh, why he's, quote-unquote, addicted, and so he asks him a lot of questions like, where do you masturbate, when do you masturbate, how many mm -hmm. times a week do you masturbate, and, you know, he asks if he's addicted to pornography, and he says, I don't know, um, and, you know, the choice in the reveal of what he is addicted to, what he is specifically masturbating to, I mean, I think um, it's a, uh, I, I, I think the movie, it's kind of hard to talk about without talking yeah. about it, but um, James, the, the movie is directed by James Cameron, and I mean, that's probably enough um, in itself. Uh, I, I think he's done a particularly good job at creating um, visuals that are perplexingly sexual and have been ingrained in our society um, in one way or, or the other. There is a lot of um, side boob in that movie. There's a lot of aggressively large people in that movie. And I think it's just kind of uncanny. The, the, his attention to detail is humorous. Yeah. Uh, what were, were there any particular challenges that you had in uh, making this movie? Yeah, I mean, we shot in a Mormon church, but to do that, we kind of had to, um, you know, there were like certain limitations of where we could film, when we could film, mm -hmm. and I wanted to film all the time everywhere. So that, you know, meant that creatively scheduling a, an, you know, a, a timetable. So, you know, there's some holy spots like the baptism where we shot in that, you know, I had to make sure no one was really um, watching us when we did it. Um, we had permission to shoot there, mm -hmm. but it's just not very, um, not encouraged for people to even videotape their own child baptism. Right. It's considered like a very holy place and event. No, I, I remember because uh, my wife and I got married at the uh, ward that her parents went to, and we weren't, I, I remember vividly that we weren't able to uh, take, take pictures inside the uh, chapel. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I remember. Yes, I know some exactly of what it's been. Um, what was. Yeah, so you. Yeah. Uh, what inspired you to get into filmmaking? Oh, I, when I was a kid, I watched Home Alone a little too much. I broke the VHS. So um, that, that was probably my biggest inspiration of wanting to get into the movies. Um, my first movie was uh, Independence Day. I, I made it with toys. I remade Independence Day to direct the film, but I remade it as a child with X-Men toys um, on a VHS. I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's probably some kind of illness I have, probably, most likely. Uh, who, who are the, are there any particular filmmakers that you take inspiration from? Uh, I don't, mm, no, not, I mean, I like watching movies less and less and um, not, um, you know, I, I think um, most recently um, this last year, not, not too much came out because it was COVID, 
Um, I, I saw Miranda July's Kajillionaire last Sundance, and I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see did you, you see Miranda July's Kajillionaire? I've not watched it yet, but I've heard excellent things about it. So I I do need it's to pretty it's on. pretty far out. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fun. I also I also really like uh, Aki Karasmaki movies. Uh, he's a Finnish director that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been watching a lot of westerns recently. I watched Ex- Oxbow Incident last night. That's that's great. That's a great one. <laughs> did you happen to Did you happen to watch the uh, Nicolas Cage movie? It was at Sundance this year. Oh, dude, I'm a huge fan of Sion Sono. I'm very pissed. I missed that feature. I'm I'm oh, very upset. Man. I wasn't able to get a ticket. Mm. It was it was really enjoyable. Uh, I bet. I'm don't don't make me yeah. too jealous. I I was really heartbroken. I'm a huge fan of Sion Sono. Mm. Love Exposures is actually that's funny you bring that up. Love Exposures, one of his past films, is a, is a huge influence on me for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you'll probably I think you'll probably enjoy it, and it does have a lot of Western elements, which made me want to uh, bring it up. Um, cool, cool. So this is this the first film of yours that's played at Sundance? You said you'd seen Kajillionaire there last year. Oh yeah, I was just uh, I I was um, I produced a movie, a short film that played Slam Dance, and so I spent the last couple of years trying to sneak into Sundance parties with projects, because um, because I was there with projects playing at Slam Dance. Love Slam Dance. Um, they're like the first people that supported um, my collective of filmmakers called the American Standard Film Co. But this is my directorial um, debut. This is the first short I've ever directed, and the first time playing Sundance, and we won the. Um, a special jury prize for um, short fiction, uh, U.S. fiction, excuse me. We won the U.S. Fiction Award, so that's really cool. And and that's been um, it's been a wild ride and a really cool experience. And so glad for the support of for, and, and uh, from from Sundance. Uh, collective, have you heard too much? Have you heard much from uh, people who watched it at the festival and what they thought of it? Yeah, I've got a lot of feedback. You know, a, a lot of the people that reach out are like either ex-Mormons uh, or people with, you know, a background in Mormonism. I, I think they like saying hi. So that's nice. You know, I got an email the other day um, from a guy that actually served in the same part of the world that I served my Mormon mission, um, which is like this like a volunteer ecclesiastical service uh, kids um, do with the name tags and white shirts and all that. And mm-hmm. I, I went to Northern Argentina. This guy hit me up. He's like, like maybe like, Mm, 10 20 years he's like 20 years older than me and he was just like hey i liked your movie and i also like served in your same mission and like here are the places i served like i was like stationed and mm-hmm. they really had some like crossover so that was like a cool combo okay um well thank you very much for uh taking the time to uh talk to me tonight i'm glad we were able to uh make thank you so much yeah thanks so much for chatting i super appreciate it and, you know, um, big fan of the show. Thank you. And uh, good luck with the film as it continues to play other film festivals. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Thank you very much for uh, sticking with me. I had some computer issues that I had to uh, sort out before I could record this. Um, coming up on the podcast, we're going to be talking with... Uh, friend of mine about one of the great anime directors who is uh now who passed 
uh, about a decade ago. And we're going to have a lot of other topics to uh, discuss as the year goes along. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. And uh, I hope you uh, hit subscribe at the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel or whatever else you listen to podcasts. And thank you very much for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you.